Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this he has been given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd like to now invite Pastor Jeff who will share in today's message titled, The Art of Contextualization. Good morning. It's so good to worship with you all. This morning, before we dive into our passage, I, I actually want to play a video for us. It's a clip taken from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. It's a, one of those late-night talk shows. And on these late-night talk shows, you, they typically invite guests on, and they'll ask them questions and interview them. And, and in this particular clip, Colbert has Dua Lipa on as a guest. She's this British pop star. I didn't know who she was, but maybe some of you guys do. But in, in this case, the tables are turned. And Dua Lipa is given an opportunity to interview Stephen Colbert. And so she ends up asking him a question about faith and comedy. So let's watch the clip now. 
When this video clip first came out a few months ago, Tim Keller uh, retweeted it and, and said this, quote, this is a brilliant example of how to be a Christian in the public square. Notice the witness, but in a form the culture can handle. We should desire to have more Christians in these spaces and give them grace as they operate. Now, immediately, because it's, it's Twitter, you know, there were some pretty strong reactions, right? You, know, you had people who agreed wholeheartedly with what Keller was, the point that he was trying to make. But then there were other people on the other spectrum who questioned, right? They questioned whether Colbert was a Christian in the first place because of his character and whatnot. And there were others who critiqued whether he, uh, you know, that he didn't go far enough because he didn't really talk about the gospel. He didn't talk about Jesus or the cross or anything really explicitly. Now, my intent in, in kind of using this video as a, as a thought experiment or as an example is not really to comment on some of these, all these other things that we can nitpick on, but simply to raise the question that I think Keller's trying to raise with this, this clip, which is, how do we talk about our faith in the public square in a way that is understandable and compelling? Right? I think that was in part maybe what Keller was driving at, this art of contextualization, right? How do we articulate and adapt and share the message of our faith in a way that doesn't compromise our beliefs or, our, or the gospel, but still serves to make our faith accessible, to make it understandable and compelling, and which perhaps can lead to more explicit conversations about Jesus, what would you say, maybe, if you were put on the spot and asked a similar question? You know, for those of you who are teachers, does your faith and teaching ever overlap? And does one ever win out? Does, does your faith and medicine ever overlap? And does one ever win out? Does your faith and debugging code ever overlap? And does one ever win out? Does your faith in loving your children you know, as, a, as a parent ever overlap? What about your faith and those of you who are students, you are pursuing knowledge. Does your faith and your pursuit of knowledge through getting a college degree or a master's, some of you are working on your PhD, does that ever overlap? Does one ever win out? You know, is, our, is our answer simply to you know, cite Colossians 3.17, you know, whatever you do in word or deed, every, uh, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, which might mean nothing to the person that we're talking to. I'm going to take a moment, let's, let's kind of rewind back, and, and let's look at what Colbert said, and how he responded, what he's doing here. I think this is maybe in part what he's trying to get at. He talks about how faith is connected to three things, right? The idea of love and sacrifice being somewhat related, the idea of giving yourself to other people. And thirdly, that death is not defeat. And so the first thing he doesn't really expound on, right? But I think the idea of sacrificial love and giving yourself to other people maybe might be a different take on how people might understand or even experience love and can lay the foundation for later conversations about Jesus' sacrificial love on the cross. But he does, he does talk more about that third point, right? Death is not defeat. I think, I think it seems like the point that he's trying to make is that when we treat death as a defeat, we fear it. And that fear makes us turn to evil devices to avoid that death. But we ought to know that death is not a defeat, especially when we view it in light of eternity and some other things, and that impacts how we live to get today. 
And he ties that point now into his comedy, right? He brings up the movie Belfast, which he uses as a kind of a segue to talk about comedy and sadness and kind of how it relates to this, this third point. So he calls sadness a kind of emotional death, right? It's this example. But if we see the sadness as a defeat, that is, if we treat the emotional death of sadness as a defeat, we will fear it. And we will turn to evil devices to save us from that sadness. Like how often have we, trying to avoid sadness, have turned to things like addiction or gaming or drugs or alcohol or whatever to numb the pain, to avoid that emotional death which we might consider a defeat of sadness. But he says laughter keeps us from having fear of the sadness. The laughter keeps us from seeing the sadness as defeat. The laughter is there to to acknowledge the sadness as an emotional death, but not a defeat, right? Death is not defeat. And then he quotes this, uh, not scripture, right, but this American black poet, Robert Hayden. He says, we must not be frightened nor cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. And we might ask, well, how do we get this laughter, I think what he's trying to say by the end is like by knowing that, you know, that death is not defeated and by seeing death in light of eternity. And I think there are elements here that could tie into our faith as we follow Jesus, right? The idea of death is not defeat, the idea of eternity. Now, how do we, you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, know that death is not defeat? Well, how do I know that I am not defeated? Well, let me tell you about the resurrection. Let me tell you about Good Friday, which is coming. Let me tell you about Easter, which is coming up. Now, in our, our passage this morning, Paul is, as he's along his missionary journey, he's given an opportunity to speak in the public square about his faith. He does it in a way that is perhaps somewhat different than what we've come to expect or come to see in these past chapters thus far in Acts. You know, his address, he's, he's not talking to Jews, he's not talking to Gentile god but he's speaking to Greek philosophers and civic leaders. So let's go to verses 16 to 21 for the background. It says there that, that Paul's in Athens, right? He just traveled there, and while he's waiting in Athens, he's looking around and he sees the city that is full of idols. We're talking about streets littered with lines of Idols, hundreds, if not thousands of idols. And then looking across the marketplace, which is where he's at, Paul would have seen the temples and the altars and the cult images dedicated to Athena and Aphrodite and Apollo, the Emperor Augustus. And we could go all the way down the alphabet to Zeus. The point is that imagine everywhere you turn, you see an idol. It's unavoidable. It's everywhere. It's saturated in the community, in the culture of that city. In his spirit, it says, the text says, it's provoked. It's disturbed. It's the same word used when God is angry at idolatry. And as a missionary, as Paul is on mission, this should cause in Paul this conviction, an intense sense of urgency, zeal for the gospel. And so this is what he does, right? We see he continues to reason, which we saw him doing last week, reasoning. Reason in two places. The synagogue, which we saw him do last week, and now the marketplace. Now, I don't know if there's a, a modern equivalent for the, the marketplace, because it, it wasn't just a market. You don't just go there for grocery shopping, but it was a place where people gathered. 
It wasn't just a plaza, it was a forum too. People gathered, uh, not just for commercial business, but for social and political reasons. And so you might have people whose trade, their business, required a large audience. You would have jugglers and sword swallowers and beggars and fishmongers. And there were philosophers too and public speakers. It kind of reminds me of like Faneuil Hall Marketplace on steroids. If you've ever been there, you get you got the shops, you have food, you have street performers. Maybe you're just missing the, the street pe- preacher, but you have a lot of people. A lot of noise, a lot of hubbub. It's, it's a place where people are gathering, things are happening. And so Paul is there in the marketplace, the Agora. He begins to preach about Jesus and the resurrection. And he begins to attract the attention of two groups of philosophers, the, the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans, they, they were, uh, kind of their approach was that they were indifferent to gods. The gods were there, but they're kind of like just impersonal. They're off kind of doing their own thing. They view the gods as kind of too removed for them to be even, be even concerned about it. And some people call them agnostic secularists. And the Stoics, on the other hand, you know, they were pantheists. Pantheists are people who believe that God is everything. He's everywhere. He's everything. And then some of them were also panentheists, which means that God is in everything. The point is that they basically had a very different worldview, set of values from the Jewish people that Paul was speaking to in the synagogues that we've seen him do in these chapters these past few weeks. These are Greek philosophers. They're not reading the Mosaic Law. They're not reading the Old Testament that we have. They're not observing Sabbath. They're philosophizing. And they like to philosophize about new ideas. And what Paul is presenting seems new to them. Right? This Jesus and this idea of resurrection. So the Greeks, didn't, they didn't really have this, this framework, this category in their mind for resurrection. It was confusing. It was new, though. Death for them was a one-way ticket. Right, you, you, it was a one-way street, death meant you go to Hades and you don't come back. And so to them, Paul appears to be preaching and speaking about foreign gods or new gods. You know, they call him uh, a babbler, which is basically this, I don't know, a diss or a term for someone who's just basically just hunting for news and little scraps of information and spreading it everywhere. It's someone who likes to spill the tea share gospel, but doesn't actually know what they're talking about. They just kind of like to know what is the newest novel thing that people are saying, and they pick it up and they kind of pass it along, which is ironic because Luke is now at the end, near the end, he he is flipping it and he's calling the Athenians, these Greeks, as these babblers. He says, now all these Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Whatever tickled their ears, whatever was novel and new. And to these people, the, uh, what Paul was preaching seemed new. And so they bring him to the Areopagus before this council. This place was also known as Mars Hill. Some of you are aware of uh, past churches called Mars Hill. That's where the name comes from. It's a Latin name for the Areopagus. And this was a big deal that the Athenians are saying that Paul is introducing new gods into their society. Because we know that, you know, it was, they worshiped many gods, right? Like literally, that's how the text starts. It's full of idols, full of gods everywhere, right? But that didn't mean that introducing new ones wasn't a 
uh, a big deal. Anytime there are new gods or new cults, new rites, it required the official authorization of the state. And so this is kind of what's happening here. There's some politics involved. And so if there, if there was a new introduction of a new deity or whatever into the city, it would prompt the council and magistrates to kind of evaluate and determine the novelty, the desirability, and even the requirements. Like maybe this group coming in, they need a new temple, or they need a new altar, or they need resources. Like it's recorded in history, there's accounts of this, that when some people wanted to establish a temple of Aphrodite in Athens, that a decree was passed. It records a name. I'm not going to pronounce it because I don't know how to pronounce it, but the name of the person who made the motion, the decision by the council to have the assembly of the people discuss this matter, the name of the person who put the matter to a vote, the name of the person who made the motion to, 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 to decide the matter, and the, then you, the formal request of the people to obtain a plot of land to build a temple, and then the, the decision of the council to give the people a plot of land for the purpose of uh, and then they, they point to an earlier precedent, right, saying, oh, these Egyptians before, they wanted to build a temple for Isis, and we pr- proved that. And it kind of reminds me, because for those of you who know, our church council meets quarterly, and we just met yesterday, and then we had someone put a motion to vote, and we had someone second it, and it's like it's all in our minutes. Uh, so, we, you know, they were doing Robert's Rules of Orders, and we're doing Robert's Rules of Orders. Thousands of years later, right? So politics, right? Bureaucracy, red tape. This is what Paul is kind of caught up in. He is before these civic leaders. And he is being investigated concerning the foreign gods that he seems to be bringing to the city. And he needs official permission. If these new ideas are incompatible with Athenian uh, traditions and whatever, they might reject what Paul is saying and condemn what Paul is saying. And so Paul is put on the spot. This is kind of like the context. He's not simply just giving this missionary sermon. He's not here primarily to share the gospel, like let me sit you down and let me go over the Roman road or the four spiritual laws or the bridge illustration and tell you about Jesus. But, you know, he's still going to bake some of that in to the things that he talks about. But he's here to give a civic speech to civic leaders. He's here in the public square to address this question that they're raising of, who are you introducing into our society? Do you need a new place of worship? Do you need new cultic observances? Do you need new personnel? And then the question remains for Paul, how does Paul talk about his faith in the public square in a way that is understandable and compelling? How is he going to contextualize his faith without compromising it? So, if you will, turn with me to his speech, verses 22 to 31. We're going to be looking at his address and then talking about some of the implications for us today. So first, what we see overall is that he addresses the Areopagus. This is what is happening here. And his address kind of has three broad movements. Right? He begins with this God who is unknown. He moves to God who is creator, and then he ends on God who is judge. Remember the context for his speech, right? The, the council is asking, what new gods are you introducing? But we know, and, the, and Paul knows, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, is the one and only true God. He's not a new God. He's the only God. So what does Paul do? 
Well, he begins by presenting God as revealed. Verses 22 to 23, he says, You know, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so he begins by kind of acknowledging the Athenians' religiosity, right? Like, he's like, I see you. Like, I see you trying to be super religious and trying to search for God. Now, he's going to critique some of that later on because they're kind of groping after God and kind of doing it in ignorance, not really getting anywhere. But for now, he's like, I see you. I see you trying to cover your bases, right? You want to know how I know? Because I walked, I took a walk around your city. I see Counted all the gods, all the gods, laid out all the temples. And hey, you even got an altar to this unknown God. But you also want to know why the God that I proclaim is not a new God? It's because I did my homework and I walked around the city, saw all your idols. And he looks at this altar to this unknown God and to show that the God who he proclaims is one that the Athenians already, quote unquote, acknowledge, even if they don't know. He basically uses kind of the altar against them. Like, my God is not a new God because technically, technically, your altar is a version of choice E, all of the above. And so it's included there. And so basically, it's covered. Your, this council doesn't need to get involved. But Paul also uses it as an opportunity now to segue from the unknown God to the one true God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So the second movement in his address is this, God as creator. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul forms his speech, and we may not know this, uh, since we may not know all the culture, but there are points of agreement there that would stand out with some of these Epicurean philosophers and some of these Stoic philosophers. Right? The idea that God was one being who gives life in existence, that would have connected with the Stoics. The idea that God does not live in man-made temples, that would have connected with the Epicureans. Now, Paul's reasons are, are clearly different, right? His reasons are biblically informed. You can go back to Genesis. You can go back to Scripture about his convictions about creation and life. But he continues. He says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Again, the idea of God being present, personal, imminent in the world and close to human beings was an idea that would have connected, resonated with the, the Stoics. So notice that Paul uh, also, he alludes to Scripture, but he doesn't quote it. Right? Again, these are Greek philosophers, not the Jewish people in the synagogue. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. But he also does this other thing. He quotes from a poet. One of their poets. Eridus, a Greek poet. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. Right? Paul is not reasoning with 
Jewish people who are familiar with the law. He's reasoning with Greek civic leaders and philosophers who would probably know the poets of their day. And he uses that to support his point about the relationship between God and humans, creator and creation. And then he uses that, right? He, he begins to acknowledge points of agreement, but he's not just there, right? Because then he could very much compromise the message of the gospel. Like, this God that I, I am bringing is just one of many gods. We know that's not the case. Paul knows that's not the case. And so he begins to take that and also critique idolatry. All the idols he saw. He says, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, right, you philosophers, some of you, at least half of you, are agreeing with me like, hey, uh, God created humans, we are his offspring, this is how we relate to him. And he says, if that is the case, then humans can't create God by fashioning him into existence through an idol. Right? It doesn't logically work out, it doesn't make sense. So Paul has made some points of agreement in his speech, but he's not going to compromise his message or his faith. He's going hard against idolatry. And he ends with this. If we shouldn't conceive of God as an idol, then what do we do? So the third movement in his speech, he points to God as judge. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul is now, kind of charging the Athenians with this ignorance, which is bold because, you know, they were, they prided themselves on their intellectual history. At the same time, if you think about it, the Athenians kind of admitted it themselves that they were kind of ignorant when they built this altar to the unknown God, right? Because they're like, we don't know everything. Like, we're kind of ignorant. Like, we're just going to kind of build this thing, E, choice to E, all of the above, Right? They're searching for God, they're groping after him, but it's not really amounting to much. And Paul is pointing out that ignorance is no excuse for not responding to God. There's a, a legal principle, um, which in Latin is ignorantia juris non excusat, which means ignorance of the law is no excuse. And some of you guys who are lawyers, maybe, maybe hopefully I'm applying this right, right? But it, it, I think this principle applies in most cases, right? That just because you're unaware of the law doesn't mean you're excused. Like, we could test that, right? Like, next time you get pulled over, try telling the officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was 35. I didn't know that I had to yield. And see how the officer responds. Right? This was something that I had to learn when I moved to New York, right? You can't turn right on red in New York City, like we're, we're in Massachusetts, we're used to that. You can actually, you can do it in New York State, but once you enter into New York City, you can't write on red. And I didn't know isn't going to cut it. And if they let you off with a warning, that's called grace and mercy. It's not because you're innocent. So Paul, Paul says, right, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because God will judge the world by a man, he doesn't name this man, but we know he's Jesus, by a man whom he has appointed. And death is not defeat because he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. At this, because this resurrection thing is kind of a new thing, they start 
quarreling or they start discussing and kind of interrupts Paul, and we're given this threefold response. There's rejection, there's curiosity, and there's acceptance. But that acceptance kind of comes kind of somewhat later, right? Paul finishes his address. He's made his point. The council doesn't need to get involved. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, including some of these people that were mentioned. So, what are we going to take away from Paul's speech before political civic authorities? It's interesting because even as I was kind of reading through some commentaries and seeing what people, how, how, they, how they took this, this speech, there were, you know, there were some who regarded Paul's address as really as barely Christian. Because he kind of just does it once and doesn't really go back to kind of giving us another example. He talks about God, but he barely talks about sin, doesn't even name Jesus or the cross, has no mention of how people are saved or how to find God through faith in Jesus. But then others, on the other hand, make this uh, speech a, a shining model of a contextualized presentation of the gospel. It's probably, I don't know, in my mind, it's probably somewhere in between. I mean, Paul is given a forum, not primarily to convince the philosophers to repent and turn to Jesus. That's not what they asked, brought him here. He finds himself giving a civic address before authorities that would impact legal issues surrounding the church. He's not in a situation, he wasn't asked to be like, hey, let me sit you down, right? Let me share with you uh, this four-point gospel presentation. Let me bring out my bracelet with all the different colors, the red and the white and the black and whatever, and, you know, hand, hand one to you and all that stuff, right? But he is in a situation where he does need to speak about aspects of his faith, about certain convictions, Without compromising. And so I think maybe our takeaway is this for this morning. To contextualize. We are called to contextualize without compromising our faith. Contextualization, again, Keller defined it this way. Adapting your message to be understandable and compelling to particular hearers without compromising the truth in any way. And I think part of that requires three things. Knowing three things really well. Knowing the gospel, knowing yourself, and knowing others. Like sometimes we, we know the gospel because we went to Sunday school, we were in Bible study, we, like, we kind of memorize these things, right? You memorize scripture verses, I'm going to use this verse for this point and that verse for that point, right? And we kind of know ourselves, some of us, but how well do we understand how and why others think as they do? Our neighbors, our coworkers, our other fellow students, right? What drives them? And Paul, when we look at Paul, he was able to speak to people in the synagogue. He was able to speak to those in the marketplace. He was able to speak to the highly sophisticated. He's able to engage the current culture. He's able to establish points of connection, but also recognizing those points of contradiction. One author said this, What is the language of your neighbors, their beliefs, their heroes, their deepest aspirations. How can you retell this story for them using their language and setting their heroes with Christ as the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams? You see, the world has changed. And with it, the presumptions, the convictions, the values have changed with it. 
A few weeks ago, CB uh, hosted a leadership workshop. It was just for the, the members of the church council, uh, the pastors, deacons, and elders. The, those are the, the, the leaders that make up the church council. And I had invited our speaker, Dr. Todd Bolsoner, to come and speak on leadership in a changing world, and that when the world changes, we have to lead differently. And one of the things that stood out was how he began his message. He began by sharing how his background was that he was trained at an iconic church in Los Angeles, Hollywood Presbyterian. In 1963, it had over 8,000 members. And one of his uh, um, members of the church had saved a copy of a newspaper of the LA Times from that year and given it to him. Because on the back, there was an article that featured the church because it was the largest Presbyterian church in the country at that time. When he got there in the 80s, the church had 4,000 members. Today it has 400 members. Now, he mentions that the church is full of beautiful people, but at the same time, the church had gone through some hard times and struggled to adapt to this massively changing world. He points out that in this copy of the 1963 LA Times newspaper, next to the article on that church was a box with a week's worth of daily Bible readings. So he says this, that in 1963, the LA Times helped you with your morning devotionals. Like, how crazy is that, right? Think of the New York Times or whatever news thing that you subscribe to, Huffington Post, Washington Post, Boston Globe, right, doing that for you. Or since most of us don't have a paper newspaper, think of, like, instead of opening your phone and seeing a push notification from version Bible saying, this is the verse of the day, you see a push notification from New York Times saying, look, this is the verse of the day. Read this today from the Bible. That's not today. That was a generation ago, right? Only a generation ago, only a lifetime ago. He says this is, and what, what many professors say, this is the, what we call the age of Christendom. A time where Christianity was privileged in the culture. It didn't mean that everyone in 1963, uh, America, was a Christian, but it did mean that Christianity was in the culture, or it was the culture. It was saturated. That even if you didn't believe in Jesus, probably still had heard the gospel. You probably knew someone who went to church. Even if you didn't believe in Jesus, you probably still knew the first and last book of the Bible was. You know, some of us Christians, some of us may have our time with that too, right? But the point is that Christians' values were the culture's values. That's not the world we live in today. We are no longer in Christendom. The world has drastically changed over the past 60 years. And because of that, we need to adapt not just to how we lead, for us as elders and pastors and deacons and lay leaders, but how we speak when it comes to our faith. We must learn to contextualize our faith without compromising it. That means knowing the gospel, that means knowing ourselves, and that means knowing the culture, the neighborhood, the communities that we're living in. It matters for those who might testify and give an answer in public spaces like Paul, right? You think about our civic leaders, people who are going to those town halls or Congress and going to those hearings. You know, many years ago, the uh, one House member mailed over 500 Bibles 
to each member of Congress to guide them in their decision-making. It was probably well-intentioned, but obviously it wasn't well-received. How might we address some of the most controversial topics of our day in a way that is informed by our faith, our worldview, but do so in a way that is understandable and is compelling to those who don't share it. And this matters for us today because we're only within the walls of this church for an hour and a half, maybe on a Sunday morning, maybe a little bit longer. If you're here earlier, you come back for a small group on another day. But other than that, we're in the world. We live here in America, in Lexington, in Bedford, in Burlington, in Needham, and so on and so forth. We live in the culture. Our kids go to school here. We go to school here. If we're really going to bridge cultures to build a family in Christ, part of that is learning to contextualize without compromising our faith so that all the world would acknowledge and know God our creator. And so let me end on this. Where, where might we start? Maybe this morning we start simply by asking and start reflecting on the question in the video. If we were asked this, right? How does my faith and my vocation, whether that's something about my vocation, teaching, debugging code, giving mes- medicine, pursuing knowledge, learning, how do those things overlap? How would we answer Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks continually for your goodness, for you are our creator. You are our God. You are the one who gives us life, gives us breath. Help us to continue to internalize and own and understand the goodness and richness of the gospel as it pertains to us, and even more so as it pertains to those who don't know it. Help us in this endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.